Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the Gospel of John. John chapter 1 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. We're going to read from verses 1 through 18 of John chapter 1. Uh, This is the third time, I think, in eight days that I have read this passage to you. It's a wonderful uh, um, few paragraphs from the Gospel of John as he introduces his book, John 1, 1. You follow along in your copy of the scriptures as I read. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him. To those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him, concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have received grace in place of grace already given. For the law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Just last week, like we read John 1, also like last week, I want to begin by talking to you about gifts. Some of you are probably wearing something that you maybe received as a gift on Friday. If you want to tell me about your presents, I would be happy to hear about them. But I'm not actually thinking so much this morning about Christmas gifts. I want to talk to you about unexpected gifts. Gifts that come out of the blue. Gifts that that are not scheduled, that appear just because. Often those are the gifts that are most memorable. Isn't that true? Uh, I remember when I was in high school, and I've talked with you about this before, but uh, when I was in high school, one of the things that started me thinking about uh, ministry was the service that I did in my high school in in my home church in the Awana club that we have. I spent a lot of time uh, volunteering with Awana, preparing for Awana, and getting ready for it. I threw my heart and soul into Awana when I was in high school. My father, recognizing this, flipped through the Awana supply catalog, a treasure trove of all Awana goodness, and he purchased for me a watch that has the Awana logo on it. I remember where I was, and I remember how I felt, and I remember what he said when he gave it to me, just out of the blue. 
a surprise here, recognizing my interests, and, and I didn't even need a watch, but here he is giving me this unexpected gift. I remember that. I don't remember as many of the Christmas presents, if any, that I received that year. Unexpected gifts are often the most memorable gifts. Uh, during these Sundays that bookend uh, Christmas, we have been unfolding this passage in John 1, looking at it to try to help us understand uh, more about God's great gift. It is God's in, uh, John's intention, John's plan, that when we read the Gospel of John, and as we get to chapter 3, verse 16, when it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, we're supposed to be astonished when we read that, in awe. This is the measure of God's love. This is how great his love is for us. He gave his one and only son. Who is this son? We talked about this last week. He's the word. He's God himself and God's peer. He's the creator. He's better than John. He's the true light. And today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about what an unexpected gift he is. His coming was not a surprise, but we did not expect God to come this way. We did not expect that there would be this mercy when God comes. We never expected God's gift to be treated the way that he was. Who would have expected, if you think about it, who would have expected that the first witness would be shepherds? And the Magi, they did not expect to find him in Bethlehem. They thought he'd be in Jerusalem. There's so much about God's great gift that's unexpected. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to show you unexpected realities of God's great gift. I want to find six of them. I want to show you six of them here in John chapter 1. Six is a long list. It's longer than we usually spend. Uh, but, but remember, John 1 is the introduction to uh, the book. There's 21 more chapters where John's going to unfold these things. So I'll merely mention a couple of them. I'll, I, don't, I never merely mention anything. I'll mention them and talk a little bit less about some of them than others. So these six unexpected realities. Notice this. First, his unexpected appearing. His unexpected appearing. Verse 14 says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And he mentions word, the term word, and we go back to chapter or verse 1, and we find in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. This is God, and he's coming. He became flesh, and this is not the way we would expect God to appear. The reason we don't expect God to appear this way is because in the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament, when God does appear, he does not appear lowly, and he does not appear quietly, and he does not appear so humbly as, as a baby. Look with me at Psalm 29, verse 3. Psalm 29, 3, and the verses that follow. This is what it's like when God appears. This is not a silent night. Think about, Look at this. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon leap like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare, and in his temple all cry, glory. That's how God comes. That, 
The, the God who thunders and comes with lightning and breaks cedars and causes earthquakes doesn't fit very well in a manger. Look at Psalm 46, verse 8. Here's what God does. Come and see what the Lord has done. The desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. And yet in John 1, he comes as a baby. This is not how we would expect him to appear. Even, even in Psalm 23, this gentle image of God, he's our shepherd, he makes us lie down in green pastures, his goodness and mercy follows us all the days of our lives. He, he, he walks with us through deep, dark valleys. Even that God isn't lowly like a baby. Actually, we see unfolded here in this unexpected appearance some of the, of the mystery of the book of Isaiah is unfolding for us. So in the book of Isaiah, the nations of the world are involved and God prophesies and speaks about the nations and confronts the most powerful nations and God rules over all of them and God steps into the fray and what kind of warrior does God send into the battlefield of the book of Isaiah? A child, a son. It's not what you would expect. We're going to go to the book of, of Exodus in just a, a few minutes, not quite yet, but um, John is thinking about Exodus when he says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Made his dwelling among us. Remember, the book of Exodus is about how God rescued his people from slavery. He used Moses. Moses led them out of Egypt in slavery, uh, out of slavery in Egypt. And then God met with them on Mount Sinai. And he gave them his law. He gave them his commandments. He gave them his covenant. He made a covenant with them. And he gave them instructions about building a tabernacle, a tent that would be for him because it was his intention to make his dwelling among the people. The people lived in tents. God lived in a tent. He moved in with them. And if you went up to any faithful Israelite woman and said, where does God live? Because she's an insightful theologian, she would say, our God lives in the heavens. He is great, but his tent is over there. You can go visit it if you want. That's God's tent. He lives there. The lights are always on. His servants are always working, and there's always food cooking. In John's day, of course, they did not have a tent. They had a temple that was in Jerusalem. And if you went up to any faithful uh, Jew living in Jerusalem at the time and you said, where does your God live? He would say, our God lives in the heavens because he is great and no building can contain him. But his house is two streets down, turn right, and then a left, and you'll be there. You can't miss it. The lights are always on. His servants are always working. And there's always food cooking at God's house. God has made his dwelling among his people. Now go to, up to the apostle John. And you say, John, where does your God live? John says, our God lives in the heavens. He's too great for anything on earth to contain him. But... For a season, he lived in the womb of Mary. And then for 18 months or so, he lived in the little village of Bethlehem. And then for a few months, he lived in Egypt. And now he lives in Nazareth. And there he is. In fact, he's right over there. There's God. 
He has made his dwelling among us. We would not have expected God to appear like that. But it's related to the second reality. His appearing is related to the second reality I want to show you in the text. Unexpected revelation. Unexpected revelation. Look at verse 18. It says, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. He's made him known. He's the word who communicates and he communicates to us what God is really like. He's made God known to us. Hebrews chapter 1, Leslie read it just a minute ago. In the past, God spoke to us through various means. But now, in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son so that we might know him. You you know, uh, if you want to communicate with a child, if you want to have a conversation with a child, you need to get down on their level. Especially if they're in the trouble, right? (laughs) No, don't. uh, you, You want to talk to them face to face. Grandparents know that that is the reason that God made laps. You sit down and there's this beautiful platform for your grandchildren and you pick them up and you put them on your lap so you can talk to them face to face. God came in the Lord Jesus all the way down so that we might know him and know what he's like. In the Garden of Eden, God walked in the cool of the evening with Adam and Eve In the Old Testament, he traveled with his people in a tent. In the Gospels, he walked around Galilee with the disciples. This is God making himself known through his son, coming all the way down. Now, number three, the unexpected reality in this passage, God's unexpected glory, the unexpected glory. Verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And now we need to turn back to the book of Exodus. Can you take your Bibles and turn with me, keep your finger in John 1, and turn with me back to the book of Exodus. We're not going to post these verses because I'm going to read several of them from Exodus 33, and I want you to see them. John, as he writes John 1, his, his prologue, his introduction to his book, is thinking about... He's thinking about Moses and his experience with God. Moses met with God up on Mount Sinai, and John says, we met with God in the flesh. And here he is going to compare and contrast their experiences. I know he's thinking about Exodus 33, and I hope to show that to you as we read um, the passage. So look at Exodus 33, starting in verse 18. Exodus 33, verse 18. Now Moses, then Moses said... Show me your glory. That's a big deal to John. We have seen his glory. Here's Moses. God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, Yahweh, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. John says this, John says, no one has seen God at any time. And here God has explained to Moses why you can't see God. You can't see God and live because God is holy. God's holiness is so potent that it consumes unholiness. 
Unholy people cannot survive in the presence of a holy God. God says to Moses, even Moses, you cannot see my face and live. You are not holy enough to see my face. Verse 21, then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will walk by you. I'll put, my, I'll put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. So you can imagine this. Moses is ready and God puts him in a cleft. And as he walks by, he covers Moses' face. So Moses can't see God's face. And then, but then he takes his hand away and Moses can see the trailing glory of God's back. He can see that as God passes by. Well, that's described for us in Exodus 34, verse 5. So God, uh, Moses is in the cleft. God's hand comes out, protects him. Verse 5, then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord, Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, here's his name, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Now, we'll stop there for just a minute. This is a very important description of God, abounding in love and faithfulness. Uh, those are two of our, of, well, at least one of our favorite Hebrew words in all of Scripture. The word love there is the Hebrew word chesed. It's God's loyal love, his steadfast love, his faithful love, his covenant love. God abounds in that sort of love. And faithfulness, that's the Hebrew word emet. Emet, and it means um, truthfulness. Um, God is truth. He speaks truth. He is truth. When he speaks, you can count on it because he's always true. He's always right. He always does what he says. So faithfulness is a fine translation. It's, it's uh, uh, the noun truth, but he is truthy. He is, he is truthfulness. Uh, keep that in mind. Verse 7. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Here's Moses. Here's his experience of seeing God. He sees the trailing edge of God's glory, and God reveals his name to Moses. He pronounces his name. He describes his character, and part of it, he says, he abounds in love and faithfulness. And going back to John 1, verse 14, he says, We have seen his glory, like Moses. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. And guess what he is? He is full of grace and truth. That is the same phrase from Exodus 34, abounding in love and faithfulness. I know in English it doesn't work out the same, but if you go from Hebrew, chesed and emet, to Greek, that John wrote, John 1, and to English, that's what you get. Abounding in, in love and faithfulness, full of grace and truth. Those two phrases connect uh, exactly. John is saying, here was Moses' experience of seeing God's glory. Here's our experience of seeing God's glory. And we have seen it in the Lord Jesus, God's one and only Son. But John saw a different sort of glory from God. 
he saw a different sort of glory than Moses saw. Moses saw God's glory, Isaiah saw God's glory, and when God's glory appeared to Moses and Isaiah, uh, it was loud, it was bright, it was beautiful, it was stunning, it was terrifying. That's the glory they saw. But John saw God's redeeming glory. If, you are, if you're interested in a good study sometime, go through the Gospel of John and see how John uses the term glory, glorified, um, exalted, and see what John is writing about this glory of Jesus that he sees. I want to give you one example here of, of, of Jesus of the glory John saw, the redeeming glory that John saw. It's in John 3. So flip over one page to John 3.13, if you wouldn't mind. Here is John, having, uh, Jesus is having this conversation, rather, with Nicodemus. And right before that famous verse, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, is this, this word from Jesus, John 3.13. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Then verse 14 just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. John was thinking about Moses. Jesus is thinking about Moses here. And there, John, uh, Jesus is thinking about a particular episode that happened in Numbers 21 that uh, has to do with snakes. Why snakes? I hate snakes. Why does it always have to be snakes? Anyway, uh, 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 Moses, in Numbers chapter 21, the Israelites are complaining against God and grumbling and complaining and arguing. God isn't meeting our needs. He's not providing for us. And God sends snakes to discipline them. The snakes come into the camp and they start biting people and people are dying. And, but in addition to the discipline, God also sends a way out. He sends a deliverance to them. He tells Moses, here's what you should do, Moses. Take some bronze, mold a snake, uh, fashion a snake out of it, put the snake up on a staff and lift it up. And anybody who has been bit by a snake and is, is dealing with a poison, all they have to do is look up at the snake and they will be uh, healed. God will deliver them if they just look at the snake. And now Jesus comes along and says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. When in the Gospel of John it's the Lord Jesus lifted up. That word lifted up, of course, is uh, it's a, it's a wonderful phrase. It, it's, it means uh, two different things. He was, the Lord Jesus was literally lifted up on the cross. And lifted up means exaltation, glorified. The Lord Jesus lifted up on the cross that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. John saw Jesus' glory. He saw his redeeming glory. And then John comments, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The Lord Jesus lifted up to be our sin bearer, bearing the wrath of God that we deserve because of our sin. We who are in rebellion against God, Jesus took our punishment himself on the cross. And all who look to him, all who believe in him, have life and forgiveness. Here is Jesus' 
glory that John saw. It's stunningly unexpected. It's stunningly vast. That leads us to number four, unexpected grace. Unexpected grace. Verses 16 and 17 of John 1. Back in John 1, verse 16 and 17. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Your translation might say grace upon grace. Grace is opposed to grace. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace in place of already, uh, grace already given. What he's saying here, John is saying that the law came through Moses and the law, hmm, Paul contrasts the, law and, the gra- uh, law and grace a lot. He talks about law and he talks about grace and how they uh, appear to be at odds with one another. John is saying, you know, even though there's the law, the law came from Moses, through Moses, and, and because it's God's word, there's still grace contained in it. There's still good news. Even in the law, there's good news and grace. But, but in Jesus, we have received grace in place of grace already given. We've seen grace squared in comparison to grace that Moses gave. Grace multiplied as opposed to the grace that came through the law from Moses. Grace is more than we expected. Grace that's rich and abundant and and free. The thrust of the New Testament is to teach you about the length and breadth and height and width and depth of the merciful kindness of God. I want to show you a picture of Lake Tahoe. Here's Lake Tahoe. Uh, Maybe some of you have been there. Lake Tahoe is uh, the border of California and Nevada runs right through the middle of Lake Tahoe. Lake Tahoe is the eighth deepest lake in the world. On July 4th, 1875, a couple guys took a weighted champagne bottle and uh, attached it to lots and lots of fishing line and dropped it down into Lake Tahoe to find how deep it was, 1,645 feet deep. Uh, Lake Tahoe is so big that if you tip the lake over, its contents would cover California in 14 and a half inches of water. Uh, Lake Tahoe could provide every person in the United States with 50 gallons of water every day for five years. The evaporation that comes off of Lake Tahoe over the course of one year could supply the city of Los Angeles with enough water for five years. And Lake Tahoe is small in comparison to Lake Superior. Lake Superior is 120 times the size of Lake Tahoe. And the largest lake in the world, the Caspian Sea, is 576 times larger than Lake Tahoe. It's a massive body of water. It's more than you can even contemplate. Think about trying, let's empty Lake Tahoe with a Dixie cup. How long would it take you? It's just a massive, massive body of water. And so it is with God's grace. It's that massive. You can't outlive God's grace. You can't outsin God's grace. You have not brought God's grace to the breaking point because it's greater than you can contemplate. John encourages us when he says, that the Lord Jesus is full of grace and truth. And out of his fullness, 
we have received grace in place of grace. He's saying to you, drink deeply of the grace that is found in the Lord Jesus. It's more than you can even contemplate. Unexpected grace. Now, number five, we move on to unexpected rejection. Unexpected rejection. Verses 10 through 13... It's at the center of this passage. It's at the center of the passage in location, and it's at the center of this passage in emphasis, and it's about becoming one of God's children. Verse 12, he gave the right to become children of God. Remember, this is the introduction of the Gospel of John. John is about how, by believing in the Lord Jesus, you might have life in his name. This is wonderful good news. There's forgiveness. This is God's rescue plan. There's forgiveness in the Lord Jesus. You can have life in him if you will turn to him and trust in him. That's the good news. And what's shocking, it's shocking. There are some people who don't want the forgiveness and life that Jesus offers. It's it's astonishing. John writes about this, verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. The world did not recognize him. Notice the parallelism. He he was in the world, and the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. His own, by his own, he's probably talking about the Jewish people. He came to them. He, (coughs) He came to them, and they didn't receive him. He came to his own. He came home. He came home and they didn't want him home. (laughs) I have to confess to you that I have watched, I've spent an inordinate amount of time watching Soldier Surprises Family Come Home videos. There's, (coughs) excuse me, there's 10,000 of them on the internet and I've watched 9,500 of them. If you post one on social media, I'm going to watch it. Uh, you know, this son walks into his home and says, surprise, and his mother screams, and she's so happy, she runs and hugs him. Or, or the father shows up at, at uh, his son's basketball game, or the mother, they do this, I don't know, they do this in stadiums, right? Here comes the soldier out, and she comes to meet her husband and children, and everybody claps and applauds and cries, and they hug one another, and they're so happy to be reunited, Imagine the video, Christmas morning, a family is sitting around uh, getting ready to open presents and their soldier comes in the door and they look at him and say, what are you doing here? We don't want you here. You should go back where you came from because we're doing our own thing here and there's no room for you here. It would be astonishing. It's astounding. He came home and his own didn't want him there. You read about that in the rest of the Gospel of John. The the people who said, no, 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 we don't want you. John tells us in John chapter 3 why why we didn't want him. People love darkness rather than light. Rather, I'd rather have the darkness that I create for myself that, that has the pleasures I want and the things that I long for. I'd rather have this than have you, Jesus, what you have to offer. Which, when you see that, 
Contrast with number six, the unexpected welcome surprises us, this welcome. Verse 12, yet to all who did receive him, what does it mean to receive him? It means to believe in his name, to those who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. This is about the Son and about becoming a child of God. John uses different vocabulary here. The Son and children. We're all in the same family, but he's our older brother. He's the one and only Son. We're adopted children into this family. And, and the whole point of the incarnation, the whole point of the revelation, and the whole point of the death on the cross is so that we might be welcomed into this family with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And your inclusion, verse 13, is a miracle. It's not because you just decided to, although that's the way most of us in our experience become followers of Jesus. We say, yes, I want to trust in him. I'm going to walk down an aisle. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to uh, pray with my parents. Yes, I want, to, I want Jesus to be my savior. Yes, yes, yes. But that's, that's not the main point. That, that's not the driving factor. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, you, you can't become a Christian because someone else decides for you to believe, because your dad believes, or because your mom believes. You can't become a Christian that way. It's a miracle, verse 13, children born of God. Why do you believe? Because you are born of God, grace upon grace upon grace. A couple years ago for Christmas, my sister decided for fun to go out and buy a set of fake boxes. Not fake boxes. The boxes were real. It was a set of boxes for fake products. Every person, every family has someone who uses old boxes to wrap Christmas presents. Do you know who that is? Don't point to them. But, but they, they save every box that they ever get. And then when it comes time for Christmas, they wrap whatever object in the box. So you, you unwrap a box and you're like, this is a box for a toaster oven. What is it? Oh, it's not a toaster oven. Uh, I'll keep going. And you open up, it's a football. You know, that every family has somebody like that. Well, my sister decided she found this product that made fun of that tradition. And she bought boxes for fake products, products that were crazy. One of them I remember was a steering wheel mount for your iPad. That's what the box advertised, a mount for your steering wheel for your iPad so that when you're driving, you don't have to be bored by paying attention to the road. You can keep playing Candy Crush while you're going to work. So you can get a mount to put your iPad. It doesn't exist. Some of you are thinking you want that product. It doesn't exist. The whole point was a joke. So you unwrap the package and... Uh, we were slow, apparently. We look at, what, what is this? And she, That's not it. That thing doesn't even exist. Your actual present is in the box. We were so confused. God's great gift to us comes in unexpected packaging. You might miss some things. It's a little confusing at first, but there's glory and grace and goodness there. And when you see the contrast between the packaging and the reality, you double the joy of receiving him. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and again, we are grateful to you for the goodness and the glory of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. 
Lord, we confess to you again, we are in need of an infusion of awe and astonishment because to our shame, we, we get used to these realities of the glory and the grace of the Lord Jesus. We get distracted by other things. We get tempted by our own darkness and love darkness instead of the light of your Son. So, Lord, we come before you and ask you again that you would increase our awe at the glory of your Son, at the wonder of your gift that you loved us and gave him for us. An infusion of awe at your great grace. We who are so easy to bear guilt and so prone to bear guilt and shame that the Lord Jesus has relieved us of. Uh, Astonish us, Lord, during this time in particular when we mark the wonder of the incarnation, your great gift. We ask these things according to your mercy and the name of the Lord Jesus saying, Amen.